For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is like rain that falls on parched and dry soil, that softens the earth and nourishes the seeds bedded down in the darkness so that they grow and flourish and bask in the sunshine and provide food for others. God's word is like the presence of a friend who loves you, who makes you laugh and settle into yourself and breathe easily. God's word is like a siren that catches you off guard and gets you out of your chair and sends you out into the street. God's word is like a cold wind on your face that wakes you up. I love that passage we heard from the prophet Isaiah this morning with its language of the word of God, of the word of God accomplishing that for which God sent it. It's a reminder that the word of God is not, in fact, a bunch of tired verses in a dusty book. It's not an argument you can summarize and just get once and for all. It's not dogma or ideology. The word of God is God's ongoing interaction with the world. And that interaction is vibrant, active, alive, and purposeful. This word isn't just about passing on information. In the words of biblical scholar Klaus Westermann, God's word is a word that does things. When God speaks, something comes about. God's word brings a world into being. It provokes imagination. It nurtures faith. It exposes injustice. It lifts up the lowly. It unsettles the complacent. It comforts weary souls. It opens up new futures. That's really what we are looking and listening for when we come to the Bible. Not information or advice or an argument or the confirmation of our opinions and biases. We're looking for the living word of God the word that means to do something here and now. So I'd like to have that Isaiah passage kind of in the background today as we return to Paul's letter to the Romans this morning and ask that sort of question here. What does the word of God in this particular passage mean to accomplish in and among us? What does it want to do? I know that's an easier question to answer with some passages of the Bible than others, and maybe it's not so easy to answer here. There are lots of obstacles in Romans, and maybe in our passage today in particular. The dense theological language, the terms we might not often use, words like sin and law and righteousness, the setting up of spirit and flesh as two polar opposites in human life. There are lots of obstacles here. But if you ask me what this passage means to do, I don't think it finally means to send us to our theological reference books or bog us down in jargon or put us daydreaming or off to sleep. I think it means to set us free. A story might help. Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, and the musical based on it follows the life of Jean Valjean, a French peasant in the 19th century. Early in the novel, Valjean is released from 19 years in prison 
in Toulon. Innkeepers won't give this ex-convict a bed for the night, so he ends up sleeping out in the street. The local bishop finds him, however, and invites him to spend the night in his own home. He gives Valjean a hot meal and a bed to sleep in and the sort of warm, humane welcome that he can't have received in a very long time. So far, so good. But when morning comes, the bishop and his household awake to find Valjean gone, along with the silver. They've barely had time to realize what's even happened when the police show up at the door with Valjean and the bag of stolen goods in tow. We found this man on the run, they tell the bishop, and he claims he was given this silver as a gift. We know he must be lying, so we brought him and your silver back to you. The police have the story right, of course, and the bishop has every reason to take back what's rightfully his and to send Valjean, who just betrayed his generosity and his kindness, straight back to prison. But that's not what he does. Without missing a beat, he speaks in the most surprising and unexpected way. This is direct from the novel. Ah, here you are, the bishop exclaimed, looking at Jean Valjean. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you these candlesticks, too, which are silver like the rest, and which you certainly can get 200 francs for. Why didn't you carry them away with your forks and your spoons? I've heard this story many times. Maybe you have also. And it still takes my breath away. This word of mercy for a person who clearly did not deserve it. Who hadn't even admitted his wrongdoing, let alone apologized. And yet there it is, a word of pure grace. The police are dismissed and Valjean finds himself once again a free man. The charges against him dropped. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says at the start of our reading from Romans. It's not actually that there's nothing humans might be condemned for. It's not that everything is right with the world. Far from it, in fact. In Paul's understanding, sin is not just a few really bad actions that you can avoid if you try hard enough. It's a force, it's a power, an inevitable reality of human life. No matter how hard we try to think and speak and act in harmony with God's will for a whole and flourishing creation, we will fall short. Paul has written earlier in this letter that the power of sin has been broken, that in Christ we've been freed from its grip. Yes, that's true. And yet, just in the last chapter, Paul wrote about the sin that continues to persist in our lives, about our inability to finally do what we know to be right. Simona preached last Sunday about this struggle being part of the human condition. We can know what's right. We can know the good that we mean to live and to speak. And yet we find ourselves still coming up short, still entangled in sin's grip. The good news, Paul says, is that in Christ, we find the charges against us dropped. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this word of a great second chance, of mercy we did nothing to warrant or deserve. We are, Paul says, like Jean Valjean, standing there with the evidence of our disobedience in our hands, and still God says you are not condemned. The charges against you are dropped, 
you are free. That story from Les Miserables is a beautiful depiction of grace. But do you know what happens next? If I knew I had forgotten, I was astounded when I looked it up this week. You might imagine that Valjean sort of yips with relief at his good fortune and runs out into the street dancing. But he doesn't. He stands there trembling, in fact, sensing something much more weighty at work. The bishop dismisses the police who've brought Valjean to him, and he looks Valjean in the eye and says this. Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money in becoming an honest man. Now, Valjean had been silent this whole time. The narrator says he has no recollection of promising anything. And yet there he was, holding this bag of silver and the two candlesticks now given to him, with the sun shining outside and a day to walk into as a free man. What was he supposed to do? Argue? The bishop says one last thing before sending him out into the light of day. Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil, but to good. Now wait just a minute. He does not know that. He has no idea how Valjean is going to behave. If past behavior is a good predictor of future behavior, he's going to squander the wealth given to him and be back soon enough to steal whatever he can find from the kindly bishop's house again. Valjean's word may not be worth much, but he hasn't even given that. He's been silent this whole time. The bishop has no empirical basis for that statement. You no longer belong to evil, but to good. And yet he said it. And the rest of Les Miserables is in many ways the story of those words at work in Jean Valjean's life. My word will not return to me empty, God says. Again and again in his letter to the Romans, Paul speaks the way the bishop does, declaring a massive change in the lives of his hearers. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. But you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. That last one from our reading today can be especially difficult to get our minds around, I think, since, of course, we are in one way very much in the flesh. We're living beings with skin and bone, and bodies. But that's not what Paul means here. He uses that term flesh as a sort of shorthand for self-centered ways of thinking and acting that leave no room for loving God and loving neighbor. Again and again, Paul declares an incredible fundamental change from death to life, from law to grace, from flesh to spirit. This has happened, he says, in and among you. Now wait just a minute, Paul. Have you talked to every member of those churches in Rome? Have you checked to be sure they are perfectly sincere in turning away from sin? Do you know precisely how they are all behaving right now and how they are going to all behave tomorrow? What grounds do you have 
to make this declaration that they are all in the Spirit. He's got no empirical basis for that statement, of course. Only the gospel. Only the grace of God. And yet he says it to the Romans and to you. It's a way of saying, yes, you are really free. And God's grace has a hold on you now. And it won't let go until it's done its work. My word will not return to me empty, God says. I stand in awe of the bishop in this story. How do you live that way? To see the person who stole from you and wish for him not punishment, but freedom and a second chance. To see him not first and foremost for the wrong he did, but for the beloved child of God he is. I don't know, but I imagine it starts with letting the word of God reign on our brittle hearts with the good news once again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, only mercy, only freedom, and a new day for grace to do its work. Amen.